0: I don't believe cages in any way help us heal. I think we find ways as humans because we're magnificent beings. I don't think being tortured helps us.
1: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Hurt people hurt people. That's not an excuse for harm, but it is what fuels much of the criminal legal system. At 19, Marlon Peterson was the lookout for a robbery in Soho, Manhattan. He was unarmed, but four people were shot during the robbery, two of them died. Peterson spent a decade behind bars. He writes about those years, and the childhood that preceded them, in his new memoir, Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. As a young teen, Peterson was a self-described nerd, a Jehovah's Witness and 8th grade valedictorian, But he was growing up a young black man in Crown Heights, Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s, the height of the stop and frisk era. He also endured a sexual assault at age 14 and then an accidental shooting. Those traumas stayed with him. I made my own choices, you'll hear him say in this interview, but I didn't choose to experience the type of things I experienced. Peterson now works to ensure fewer young people go through those experiences, and to build responses to the cycle of trauma they can initiate. That don't involve putting people in cages. Peterson is the founder of the Presidential Group, a social justice consulting firm, and founding coordinator of Youth Organizing to Save Our Streets, one of the Center for Court Innovation's violence interruption programs. He is also a member of our advisory board. A quick heads up: there is some adult language throughout this episode. Now here's my conversation with Marlon Peterson. You know, a a lot of the book, it seems to me, at least in the early parts, is about hiding. You hiding who you were and and you hiding some of the bad things that that happened to you as as a young person. But then in the book, you tell it all. Is that, like, really the journey that you most wanted to tell in some ways? It's the journey that came out. In the ideation
0: phase of this book, I knew a couple things. I knew that I needed to tell a story that was bigger than me. I knew I wanted to tell a story that wasn't that illuminated prison, but didn't center prison like the physical prison. And I, I knew I wanted to write an honest book. I think, for the most part, at least in the prof- you know professionally, you know, as an advocate, as, an, as a strategist, or what have you, you know, yeah, people know I went to jail, they know, that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, people know like. Uh, the polished me. I mean, I've written about different things before and I've spoken about things, but it's still a polished part. And I think sometimes that gives a misconception that, that like, one, prison worked. <laughs> one, that it gives a misconception that, that people, though that those of us who've, who've gone through certain situations, who've maybe gone through various types of prisons or lived in certain types of communities, had these similar, or sexual abuse, all those sort of things, that the past doesn't impact the present. So I and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to write something dishonest cause that's not true. It's not true, and we all hide them in various ways. You know, some of us don't choose to write about it or talk about it, and that's fine. Like that just happened to be a gift or skill that I like, and you know, writing does a lot for me. So I decided to let it out that way. But you know, I want people to be truthful because I think that's the only way we get to some of the thing, get to the the type of answers to things and our problems that we are striving to get, even in the policy world.
1: You said something there that struck me about wanting to tell a story that was bigger than you. Well, what was that bigger story, bigger than you that you wanted to tell?
0: I think that we all are dealing with these things or, and that you don't need to go through incarceration to, to feel some of these feelings, right? And that, that incarceration is just the most visible display of like human trauma and hurt. I always say this about my time inside. I fell in love with humanity experiencing people in prison because I saw people at the absolute worst. And I understood I was being around them in conversation and they sleeping in a bed next to me or above me, below me, wherever we're at, I got to understand that they were more than whatever it is that they were there for. And that, and that developed a love for me, developed a love for humans and, and the humans that we hate the most.
1: The, the epigraph of, of the book is, I don't believe in cages of any kind. Before you get to the the literal cage of prison, did it feel for you like you were you were inhabiting several cages growing up? Your parents are undocumented Trinidadian, that, you know, so that there's a cage there. You're a young black man, as we said, height of the stop and frisk era. Your behavior's getting criminalized left and right. Is that what you mean about not believing in cages of of any kind?
0: Absolutely. I mean in a literal way, but I do mean that. But I, like all these other things were happening. Like, these things create cages for us as people in our own families, in our household, in our, you know, in our schools. And when I say by cages, the things that prevent us from being the most, like, liberated versions of ourselves, right? Being liberated from trauma that happened to us, right? All of us, that's a, that we all can sit down in one room and talk about trauma that we've hidden, we committed, and those things impact people. And then the most extreme one, prison. You know, and so I don't believe in I don't believe cages in any way help us heal. I think we find ways as humans because we're magnificent beings. We find ways rather through being in community community with other people, therapy, whatever it is, religion, whatever works for you. But we find it that way. I don't think being tortured helps us. Uh,
1: I mean, another cage of a sort you mentioned several times in the book is masculinity. And and having to perform a, a kind of certain version of that, like what role did that play in your story?
0: You know, everybody talk about the neighborhood, the old neighborhood, right? A lot of you hear a lot of people who made it, quote unquote. They talk about the old neighborhood, and the old neighborhood usually is riddled with a lot of love and joy, joyful experience, but it's also also riddled with a lot of harm and hurt and brutal shit, and. In some ways we like required to survive but you got to be a little tougher you got to perform that you you got to make sure that other men other people don't see you as somebody that you can be preyed upon it's like some regular primal shit and i get it but i also know that that is not who i wanted to be it's who i felt like i had to be i, I always give an example like you see a little child you want to you know, cuddle and kiss and play in the air and you're tickling, ha-ha-ha, and all that sort of stuff. And by the time they're like, young as 12, 13, 14, 17, whatever it is, he, and even she or they, potentially could be this rough person in some ways trying to act tougher than the next person because they feel they got to survive because of some experiences that they had or saw. And they're no longer that person you want to hug and kiss and whatnot, right? They may scare you now, and they may intentionally make you scared of them too, the, the harmful parts of our masculinity. Let me just say that the harmful parts of our masculinity comes out even more so, and we gotta perform it for each other because we think we need to survive. And that's not, when you are doing it be, not because you want to, but because you think you have to survive. It's like you being in a cage. There's some shit I had to do in prison not because I wanted to, but because I had to survive. I had to like not communicate with people. I had to have a stoic face. I had to show no emotions. Like I didn't want to do that, but I had to perform that. It was a performance, and it worked. Right, it worked, but I'm just saying that, like, when you think about masculinity, and the, the harmful parts of masculinity, people call it toxic masculinity, what have you. Like, there are parts of it that we don't want to be, but we have to be, we feel we have to be it to survive. And that to me, that's suffocating. And and, and a lot of, and sadly, so many of us, when you think about gun violence, I know you wanna talk about that at some point, but when you think about violence in our communities, that's people trying to breathe gasp for air.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of thinking about making decisions for other people rather than for ourselves, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know the robbery that landed you in prison for ten years as a as a very young man. You were just a a lookout on that robbery, but four people end up getting shot. Two of them died. You, you wrestle with that really openly in the book. I mean, looking back on it now, how do you understand what led to that decision for you? Hmm.
0: I think I always think back to the. Uh, just It's funny. You caught me at a time, literally. I just got off the uh, my Zoom call with my therapist. <laughs> so you caught me at a real vulnerable time. <laughs> all right. <laughs> nah, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the sexual assault that I write about in the book had nothing to do, like, in any sort of literal, linear sense with the robbery I was a part of five years later. Like, that moment fucked me up. <laughs> I don't know how I wanted, I can't say no other way. It fucked me up in a way that I, only I could. See it, right? And
1: and I'm, you weren't taught. You weren't sharing it with anybody. Well, no, you didn't, no, tell, didn't, anybody
0: about didn't it, tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody until I was already in prison, facing the life sentence at the time. Was I wasn't sentenced. I was facing life at the time. Going back to that Cajun masculinity. I didn't want people to think I was soft. I didn't want to think at that time because I was homophobic as a kid. I didn't want anybody to think I was gay because it was a man that assaulted me so i was like i can't tell nobody about that right i don't want about think making fun of me and all that so sort of so i just kept it and so by the time the you know the, the opportunity for a robbery had happened i mean i was shot a year before i was robbed it might have been by a friend but i was so i was still in that place like i was i went from this honorable smart nerdy jehovah witness kid to now this kid who's out here just wading in the wind without any giving any excuse like i'm not trying to say in any way that you know, this is why this happened, so that's why I wanted to be robbing people. No, was, I chose to be a part of that, right? But I also did not choose to experience the type of things I experienced, and I didn't know how to react to it. And I reacted to it in a, in a way that wasn't helpful to people, and I did. But I I, I was around people, and I was around people that I, at certain times I felt safe around that could protect me, or not even protect me, but made me feel like I wouldn't be preyed upon, and a certain mindset that came along with that. And so I put myself around a different type of circle. And that's what we did in that circle. These things aren't hard to happen, particularly when you're in an environment where a lot of people are going through the same type of hurt and harm but not telling anybody. Like The reason why I grapple with it so much in the book, because I grapple with it so much in life. One of my first jobs when I came home from jail was to work with, you know, the CCI program, SOS, right? I was the first one of the first three violence interrupters that they had, and that's when nobody knew what a violence interrupter was, right? And I would go to these shooting responses, organize these shooting responses, be with family members who were killed, I mean, uh, who had lost family members, uh, go to hospitals, do or go to people's homes. I, like I was in that, and I would be like, they wouldn't know who I was and my history. They wouldn't know my history necessarily, they may have known I went to jail, but I, I can literally mean, remember being at shooting responses and at these public vigils where we're like lighting candles and all this sort of stuff and in my mind I'm like somebody else had to go through this because of me right and that's me like nobody knew that or when they were like I remember like Ife Charles who works with the center like you know and she was so great at that considered like a big sister to mine and in terms of and she was so great at interacting with people in the community and I know so many times she would like you know when like we light this candle or whatever say that name of that person who you may have lost and I would say the name of the people who were lost, who were killed.
1: In, in the robbery, you in were the robbery, robbery. I
0: would say their names, right? Because like I didn't kill them, I didn't shoot them. I didn't have a gun. But like I know I'm associated with it. And I know that like to this day now, 2021, that like they may think about that and they would know that my name is associated. They don't know who I was or, or my background or whatever. They just know that I was a part of that. And I know that. Like I know that. And that, so that grappling, that, you know, I'm at a place where it no longer overwhelms me. But it used to, and that's why I had to like I wanted to address that in the book because oftentimes I think people think that uh, for those of us who may have been formerly incarcerated and committed harm, or we're doing all this sort of stuff, and maybe even achieving some level of success from the work that we get to do, that in some way we have just, just dismissed the past. Like the past happened. I'm fully aware of my my. I'm fully aware of it, and I wanted people to see that. Like, I wanted people to understand that.
1: I mean, in some ways, a, a lot of the work that you've done I mean uh, uh, on yourself to be the person I mean the really impressive person you are today happened in prison but it's pretty clear you don't buy into this prison as a place to go for redemption y- you went in there you're 19 years old and you're there for 10 years I mean having had that experience what do you think prisons are are for w- why are they the way that they are
0: I think prisons ought to, are what we do as society to we, we sacrifice people for the facade of safety and order and what I mean by that is that often make these jokes. I uh, often, not make the joke, but allude to this joke, reference this joke. We all have been to the play. We've heard comedians or we've joked with our friends or what have you. You know, don't drop the soap, you go to prison, da, da, da. We make these jokes. And I and I have too. I'm not knocking you. I'm not one of the people judgmental for you making a joke, whatever. The point I'm getting to is that, like, we are subconsciously, at the very least subconsciously, but I think most of us are consciously aware that. People are harmed in prison, like on a on a very carnal level. We are aware of it, yet still there's a part of us that, is like, a cognitive dissonance that happens that says that, well, maybe they deserve that, and that will make them better. Prison is is what we know how to deal with people who have broken a social contract, right? That's how that's what we have before, and that has expanded into all type of things, right? Beyond just homicide and sexual assault to all type of things, right? But in, in terms of the utility of prison, that, like there's a utility in isolating people who might be a danger to others. But the idea that we were, you know, everybody going to space now, right? Bezos, everybody going to space. They found some people came back to earth and they saw prisons as the idea of how we fix the problems in society. They would probably be like, how is that possible? These are where all the hard things happen, all the most horrible things happen in concentrated spaces, and that's where we want to fix society. And, you know, going back to our, our end like, you know, Dostoevsky always says that you can tell the degree of, you can tell the degree of, of a civilization by entering its prisons. And then, so it makes sense when we look at our society and the levels of violence that we have in our societies. It, it, it's, it's like we live in one big-ass prison,
1: uh, but, you know, you write that over your time in prison, you became less confined by your confinement. How do you understand that? What, what, what was behind that?
0: I said before that, like, me being around people, struggling with and overcoming my biases and prejudice toward different types of people, not only about race, but also, like, uh, religion, personal background, gang affiliation, like, all those type of things. Well, I had biases and prejudices towards people. And I learned their humanity. But also, and that opened me up to things about me that I needed to sort of like reckon with. And I think like when I really started intentionally helping other people inside, like in various ways I was able to, like I saw freedom in that. There's more to life. And particularly, I want to say, particularly like in the book, I write about a lot about like, you know, the programs that I did or as a part of when I was upstate. But even before I was sentenced, I mean, I wasn't involved with a lot of the, you know, there were no programs or anything like that down here in the Manhattan House, Rikers Island, all that sort of stuff. But people knew I, I had some level of intelligence, right? So I would help people out with writing letters or whatever it was. And that helped me, like that, gave, that helped me in the sense that I was being useful to somebody. It gave me a way to be out of here. Like I wasn't just a, a throwaway person prison tells you you're a throwaway person, particularly when you're facing a life sentence, like you're throwaway, like a life sentence means we threw you away <laughs> and we can justify that or not. But life sentence means that you have been thrown away from society, you know, and that's what I was facing. So yeah. So like that, just being able to be of use to other people, I think it really was the way in which I of like was able to like, not be confined by the confinement, you know?
1: You know, I was struck by something else in the book with the, the way you write about America and the kind of founding of America and the, big lie in a sense it's founded on the exclusion of black people of of women and we're talking now about what aliens would think about if they came and saw our prisons and and you write that you aim to be a better un-american i'd love to hear you explain that a bit yeah i feel
0: like i should get that as a t-shirt um getting to the core of who we are as individuals as i try in this book i try to model in a book like the core of like my best possibilities and the core of my worst possibilities and be open about that and then choose, choose to be the better part. I think when you think about America, like what we tend to do, even now with the the, the, the public debate around uh, critical race theory, we are choosing not to accept the worst parts of the, us of, in terms of like this nation. We Like it's a convenient, it makes us feel better culturally, but we're, we're losing out on the opportunity to sort of, in so many ways, to appreciate, yeah, appreciate the worst parts of us and not choose to do it again. Well, I'm thinking, I don't I don't wanna be like that. I'm America, I was born here. Of course, I, I brag about Brooklyn all the fucking time. America, Brooklyn happens to be, even though we like to call Brooklyn the Republic of Brooklyn, but Brooklyn happens to be a part of America. Of course, I love this place, but I don't wanna be like it. And I don't think we should, I think we should try to, we need to figure out how to re, how to be less like how it has always showed itself up to
1: be. In terms of like not repeating the worst parts of ourselves, uh you know again and again there's this spike in gun violence right that's happening right now in cities uh, across the country and we're seeing the same kind of debate about what to do about it but first I, I i'd love to hear from you what you think is behind the spike that that we've been seeing now our our
0: custom in america is that every summer violence spikes that's a custom right? If you look at you look at the data, that's sadly our custom. I'm not saying that just because our custom we're supposed to, have to be okay with. It. I'm just saying that that's the evidence. The second thing I want to add to that is that when you think about the spikes in gun violence, there's also been, been a spike in gun purchases. There's been a spike in that over the, over the pandemic. And I always think about it like, imagine that over during the uh, health pandemic, where people are dying, the thing that people bought more in this country were weapons. We got more guns than people in America. Yeah, guns don't kill people, people kill people. I get all that shit. The point I'm saying that like there is a commitment to something that kills. So I'm just saying, like, why do you think that people in the hood ain't gonna do it too? Like, why do we think that? Why do we why do we expect people, black and brown people in the hood to be better than America? And I wanna add on some real things. Like over the pandemic, it's a couple of things. One is People are all dealing with the heightened stress and anxiety of people dying. Their aunts, their uncles, their mom, mamas working extra hours at the clinic or at the hospital. There's less money in the household. There's more people cramped. Schools, people aren't really in school, even though there's remote learning as parents. Parents know that remote learning is stressful. They don't know what the hell going on. So I don't know what do you think. The kids kids don't know what the hell going on. Now they're outside. They have all these beef. They're on social media. and Now they have access to weapons, along with all the anxiety and stresses and, and depression that adults are dealing with. And now you can, so you outside now, now I can see you, we outside, now we can do it. And it's just all these anxieties that people don't think kids got to deal with. Kids dealing with it too. The pandemic ain't just because, just because uh, the older folks are the ones who are catching it and dying from it, more more vulnerable from it, let me say that, vulnerable to it, doesn't mean like young people aren't dealing with it. I dealt with hard stuff and I didn't know what I was doing. What do you think these kids are doing?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then, I mean, we're hearing, I mean, in response to the what do we do about this question, we're hearing renewed calls of we need more police, we need more punishment, we need more incarceration. That's the answer to this.
0: Listen, I think that, once again, it's our our reflex. And I understand, first of all, that we want to do something. And uh, so I get it. Like, I'm not, I understand as a human, these things are hard to hear and see and experience and witness. So we want something to happen right away. Stop it now. I get that. Over the last, like particularly here in New York, right? Or in New York, there was uh, last, the beginning of 2020 was like bail reform. I remember within a couple of weeks of bail reform, they said bail reform ain't working. <sighs> fine. Whatever. Right? And that's fine. Not fine, but I get that. We are in a place now where more people are thinking about ways of dealing with community issues that aren't just way how we've done it in the past. Right. Whether it be abolition, whether it be defund, whether it be community, whatever it like whatever it is, we are literally trying to think about different ways of handling these things so that we don't repeat the same trauma. And in this year and a half to two years of people just saying it, like all, things haven't really been fully implemented in a lot of places. Right. Might have been money allocated, but it hasn't really been fully allocated. We're not given two years for these things to work. But yet somehow, but like we also know that policing hasn't worked since whenever but like two years and we had a spike and y'all didn't stop the crime in your community it ain't working How, like you got to give it why wouldn't we give us the same grace i think we're in a place uh matt where where i think that like i said this to someone recently that i think as, as policymakers but definitely as, as citizens here it's great that people in community are more invested in figuring out ways to deal with the problems in our communities without the reliance on outside forces i think that's that's what we want that's 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 community efficacy where there are more people that we're saying we can do it and we need to we're figuring it out but we we want people to be engaged that's a democracy right and i think it's like you know that's what democracy is the people are figuring this out i think i I want people to sort of just some in some ways give grace to. The fact that there's so many people formerly incarcerated, pe- currently incarcerated people, people who never had incarceration experience, all trying to figure out ways of which and where we can create safety in our communities and, and longevity that doesn't require a sacrifice in our sanity.
1: I mean, based on your experience as a as a young man, I mean, do you think fear of punishment deterrence really has any effect on the decision making that mostly young people that's who we're talking about that, that mostly young people are making like oh well bail reform has changed this so therefore i'm gonna do that or
0: when you're young and when you're in the moment you're just kind of trying to figure out the moment and yeah you know that you can get arrested and yeah you know i mean things like bail reform nobody know what the fuck that is <laughs> nobody did it's like oh word son i can like word i ain't going like they don't know right they're not that's not in the decision-making process, right? <laughs> they're not thinking about that. Like they're not the mob, <laughs> but so I mean, they, they're thinking about the moment. What our job, what our our work, or the work of people who are committed to healing and helping and preventing harm, harm from my, from these young po- folks that they have to heal from later, is to be able to be to be able to get to them in these get to them in these moments or before they get to these moments. It doesn't matter. They all know you can go to jail. Nobody, when I when we, I knew I could go to jail. Like, ain't nobody get a robbery, but, you know, people don't usually go to jail for robberies. Well, no, we knew that. Oh, like, you, you got a gun, but people don't usually go to jail for guns, even though they stopping us every day on the street when we ain't got nothing. Like, we we know that. It's just like in a moment, you know, it's, it's kids, but kids are reacting to trauma and kid shit and adolescents wanting to fit in and all that. It's just that, like, the options for rebellion are way more egregious now.
1: I want to switch gears kind of radically for a second here and ask you about Steel Pan, the steel drum, and the role of that for you, like as a young person, and I think still today. Could you talk a little bit about what that's brought to you?
0: Uh, that's my peace. You know, even as a kid, I was peace. I think, you know, my father played um, in Trinidad as a young man, and my, <clears throat> here my older brother, and older sister, they played... And I followed the tradition. I mean, I didn't always realize it was a tradition. I just felt like it was just what we do. But it's something about, like, being lost in it that always mesmerized me. Even in that teenage years when I was going through things, like, I would leave my block. And I would, you know, because what we used to practice would be out in Flatbush or other places. And I lived in Crown Heights. But wherever we were, it took me away every night. You know, you go to every night from about 6 or 7 o'clock. And sometimes it'd be, as a 15-year-old, super late. Like, I'd be coming home like 12, 1 in the morning. So it was also like, you know, but I was safe. And I was doing something that, like, gave me a literal peace of mind, you know. So, you know, and even while I was inside, it was interesting, like... It, there was sometimes depending on what jail I was in. I would the, the little radio that we had, I had Walkman. I could get a signal where I would hear some of the pan. Right, that's the only time I would hear it, and that would take me away from prison. Right, I could remember, like, it would literally take me out of, not literally, but figuratively take me out of there. So even as an adult, and I still play now, it's a thing. It's a safe space for me. It's like writing. I'm not the best pan player in the world. I ain't trying to. <laughs> don't don't think I'm gonna come out and do a solo at the next event. But as a part of a band, I get to dance and sway and be lost in it. You see when I talk about interventions in the moment, about kids, like that was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't an anti-crime intervention, but it was, it, it, it did, I never got into problems when I played pan, and Flatbush wasn't a safe area either. I ain't trying to like, Flatbush, Brooklyn was safe. That, it was crazy, the 67th precinct, one of the worst precincts in the city in terms of violent, uh, violent crime. But in that space, it was an intervention from my for my everyday things, It met me in the moment of all my trauma and took care of me, and that's what I mean. Like trying to find ways to meet these young folks, different ways. Steel Panther, me. Some people's music. Some people's ball. Some people is whatever it is. I don't know, but like it gave me a sense of peace, and I think that's what we all tend to want, particularly when we have so much chaos around us.
1: You know, in the book you're recounting toward the end of your time in prison, you, you say that you were in the process of becoming whole and i'm i'm just wondering where you feel you are now in 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 relationship to that goal
0: um i think i'm in am think i'm in a good place you know um, i would say like uh, when i finished writing that book literally when i pressed into was about to when i pressed into to my editor i felt like I, I cried and i felt like a weight was lifted um so i finally like let things out you know the book starts off with the chapters hiding and the last chapter is on american and free and I didn't know that it was going to end up that way. You know, it just turned out like, oh, shit, just how it is. But I think being whole is a lifelong process, for one. Or the, you know, but I definitely think I, I've, like, I'm I like, much more aware of the tools that I have at my disposal. I think, you know, sometimes, you, you know, particularly growing up, you don't have the tools, obviously, because you haven't lived enough life. And then definitely you may not know how to identify it and definitely how to use them. And I think I'm way more aware of the tools at my disposal to deal with harm and trauma because uh, the trauma didn't go away, it didn't didn't unhappen, (laughs) the shit happened, and it still lingers in various ways, but I'm aware of the tools that I have to be able to cope with it in a better and more healthy way. I know the people around me, I know that people care for me, I know people feel I'm deserving. I know that I am deserving, right? I know that things that happened to me were unfair. I can say that, I can say that out loud, some shit that happened was unfair to me, and that's a part of my process. So I'm definitely in a much better place, you know? I thank you for that question. Thank you for that question, man.
1: Well, thank you for that answer. And and Marlon, thank you for this interview. I really appreciate you making the time and congratulations again on the book. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what you do next with the book, also with your work. And and, and I look forward to reading more of you uh, in print. So uh, thank you so much.
0: Well, whatever I do is gonna be for people work. So as long as I can keep impacting people's lives in a positive way. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for this time.
1: That was my conversation with Marlon Peterson. Marlon is the founder of The Presidential Group, a social justice consulting firm, and the host of the Decarcerated podcast. His new memoir is Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. For more information about Marlon and today's episode, click the link in your show notes or go to courtinnovation.org newthinking. Today's episode was edited and produced by me. Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. Special thanks as well today for all of the comradeship and collaboration on this show to my friend Julian Adler. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.